Who decided what books are in the Bible? Many have heard the term canonicity used with this topic, but what does it mean? Did the church make the decision of what's in the Bible? And how did they decide? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. In our lesson today, we're going to answer these questions, plus a number of related topics in our lesson entitled, Canonicity, the Bible, and Us, How We Discover, Not Determine, God's Will. Here's our plan today as we continue our series on how we got the Bible. We've Just to review quickly, we've been looking at how we got the various parts of the Bible by evaluating the oral history, the documentary evidence, the number of manuscripts, when they were written, and all sorts of historical facts about them. And please go back to the Bible805.com site if you want to review them. We looked at the Old Testament, we looked at the Apocrypha, we looked at the New Testament, and also the Gnostic Gospels and why they are not included. And today we're going to discuss the topic of canonicity, why we have the specific books that we have in the Bible. Now, what does the word canonicity mean? The English word canon comes from the Greek word canon. It's one of those sort of transliterated books and it means a rule or a measuring stick. It can it, Think of it sort of like a yardstick. It's a standard. And in this instance, the the books that measure up to the canon of scripture, that means that they're qualified, that they literally measure up to be included as the inspired word of God. If they don't measure up, they're not included in it. Now here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean this sort of vague idea, the whole process of canonicity, that the church, whatever that might mean, whatever group of people, that it was sort of some shady backroom deal that uh, these people got together and decided these are the books that we're going to put in the Bible and they're the ones that everybody's going to have to obey. It wasn't like that at all. If it had happened that way, the books of the Bible would be the result of human decision, not necessarily the Word of God as it is. Now, why it actually happened, how it happened, and just the whole process, the standards and everything, that's what our lesson is about today. Now, a key, very foundational point as we begin is that canonicity, what is inspired and truly God's Word, is not underscore not a decision made by the church. Canonicity is established by God and merely discovered by God's people, in other words, the church. Let me repeat that. This is one of the most important things you've got to remember on canonicity. Canonicity is established by God. He is the one who sets a standard, and the books that fit that standard are merely discovered by God's people. Um, a, a really good quote from the web says, and I've got the citations in the notes if, if you want to look at them. I won't bother going into them as I go through this presentation, but uh, let me quote, we are careful to say that God determined the canon and the church discovered the canon. The canon of scripture was not created by the church, rather the church discovered or recognized it. In other words, God's word was inspired and authoritative from its inception. It stands firm in the heavens, Psalm 119.89 tells us, and the church simply recognized that fact and accepted it. 
Here's another way to put it. This is a quote from um, a, a, a theologian from the 1840s where he said, In this canonicity, then, the church is a servant, not a mistress, a depository, not a judge. She exercises the office of a minister, not of a magistrate. She delivers a testimony and not a judicial sentence. She discerns the canon of scriptures. She does not make it. She has recognized their authenticity. She has not given it. The authority of the scriptures is not founded then on the authority of the church. It is the church that is founded on the authority of the scriptures. Here's why this process is so important. You see, when the Old Testament and New Testament were written, a lot of other books were written at the same time. And they're not necessarily bad or heretical ones or ones that have wrong teaching. We talked about in our lessons on the Apocrypha and the Gnostic Gospels why they're not included. And particularly the Gnostic Gospels have some just flat out, uh, really kind of goofy, incorrect teachings. The books, though, that there was a lot of books also, though, that were written that weren't really bad like this. Uh, the Bible itself refers to some of them in the Old Testament, in Chronicles and, and Kings and some of the other books. They talk about how at this uh, these happenings were also recorded in the Chronicles of the King or the Book of Ido the Seer. Or There are different things mentioned, and basically what the writer is saying is that um, he used other sources to write his, his God-inspired writings. These books aren't included. They were written at the same time, though. And then in the during New Testament times, there uh, we have complete manuscripts of some actually very helpful, very good books. The Shepherd of Hermes, the Didache, the Epistle of Barnabas. Um, some very good books in addition to the Gnostic and heretical Gospels. You might want to think about them as sort of just like Christian books that are written today. Uh, they were written by early church leaders, widely distributed, and some of them were very beneficial. But again, they were not the Word of God. Canonicity is the process where these were sort of sifted out. And that is what finally determined what books were and what books were not part of the scriptures. Now, as truly useful and edifying as some of the books might be, they were not determined to be God's word. It's very important that we have a correct collection of them, because if a book is truly inspired by God, if it is truly God-breathed, then it is the very words of God. It is then, and this is so important to understand, authoritative for the people of God. Our eternity and our earthly life depend on the words in it. So we'd better get it right. Now, how then was canonicity discovered? Though God did it all, he expects his people to use their minds in affirming and understanding his process. Now, there are five essential questions that were used to determine if a book was canonical, was valuable, was part of the Word of God. Number one, was the book written by a prophet or apostle of God? Two, was the writer confirmed by acts of God? 
Three, does the message tell the truth about God? Four, did it come with the power of God? Five, was it accepted by the people of God? Let's now look at each one of these. Number one, was the book written by a prophet of God? Characteristically, in the Old Testament, it it just actually states this. It will often say something like, And the word of the Lord came to the prophet. The Lord said unto, God spoke, and then the message is given. In the New Testament, Paul often introduces his writings in a very similar way, where he will say, Paul, an apostle, sent not from man nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Books, most of the books in the Bible, or I shouldn't say most, many of them either explicitly declare their authorship by a prophet or an apostle, or we do accept also one someone who is close to them. For example, Mark was a close associate of Peter. Luke, of course, was a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. So then we should ask, how do we know then who wrote what? How do we know that it was a particular individual? Well, once again, many of the books actually state who wrote them, but in the Old Testament, most of it we either get from the book itself or traditional Jewish scholarship throughout literally ever since it was written, Moses wrote these books, uh, Joshua wrote this one, um, Isaiah wrote this one. We, we have tradition that we rely on for who wrote the books, and so we know that a prophet wrote them. The Gospels were attributed to apostolic writers from the earliest days of the church history. The church community recognized that these people were the authors of the Bible. And Norm Geisler makes the comment, he says, if substantiated, these claims of inspiration are so clear that it was hardly necessary to discuss whether some books were divine in origin. In most cases, it was simply a matter of establishing the authorship of the book. For example, if Moses wrote it, it was part of the law. It was canonical. If Paul wrote it, it was part of the New Testament. It was canonical. This is also why the anonymous books, we do not accept them. The Gnostic Gospels are all have all false attribution as to who wrote them. And if something is false in who it says wrote it, we don't even, it, it's not even considered as part of the canon of scripture. Criteria number two, was the writer confirmed in his position as a prophet or apostle by the acts of God? There were true and false prophets, so it was necessary to have divine confirmation of the true ones. Now, miracles were given to show God's empowering, and it's important to understand that it isn't just the miracle itself. But the miracle should ultimately glorify God, not an individual. For example, Moses was given miraculous powers. And uh, everything from uh, when it started out, he threw down his staff and it became a snake. And the pagan prophets, they did the same thing. And their staffs became snakes. And they copied a number of his miracles. But then it got to a place where they couldn't copy them. And they even recognized that this is the hand of God. 
Elijah triumphed over the prophets of Baal. Jesus, of course, did many miracles throughout the entire Gospels, and he often would say this is to show you, you know, who he is, that he has the power to forgive sins, that the kingdom of God has come upon you. He used the miracles as evidence, and of course, his ultimate miracle was rising from the dead. And the founders of the church, Peter and Paul, also, their healing, and what they did was evidence that they were prophets of God. The New Testament recognizes the purpose of miracles when it says, This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. Again, Paul was an apostle. He did these miracles, and there he's just stating here in 2 Corinthians that these are the things that mark an apostle. An apostle has authority. His writings become scripture. Criteria number three. Does the message in the book under consideration tell consistent truth about God? God is consistent in his message. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? The message in Scripture should be consistent with the rest of Scripture. God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't say one thing and lie about it. This is why all of the cults that come after Christianity that claim new revelation are not correct. Islam and the Mormon Church, they offer a different truth, a newer truth, and that simply is not how the Bible works. They are inconsistent with the rest of the Bible, just like the writings in the Gnostic Gospels. And if you haven't listened to that or watched that lesson, please do. Just go to Bible805.com and you have the links to it. But you can see, and I, I have links the excerpts from the Gnostic Gospels and things similar to it. They promise a new truth, new ideas, and you can tell just by reading them that they are not consistent with the rest of the Bible. They are false. Application. Any message that is contrary to what is already revealed, again, is false. In Deuteronomy 13, 1-3, it reminds us by saying, If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says, Let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. Miracles alone are never evidence of divine approval. Something new happens. Oh, there's all these miracles, these signs, whatever. The scriptures here tell us that Satan can work miracles. Remember, it says, if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, miraculous things can happen that are not from God. But we always have to go back and compare it to what the scripture already says. Whatever happens must be consistent with the purpose and words of Scripture. Healing, feeding people, all of these things that Jesus did were never for show. 
They were to show God's intervention, His care, His love, His healing in human life. Miracles, signs, and wonders always confirm God's message. They never contradict it or are simply to promote a person if they're truly from God. Application. For you to be able to discover inconsistency, maybe not even in great big huge miracles, you've got to know God's word. Acts 17.11 is a wonderful verse, inspiration for this, where it says, Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. What this verse is saying is when Paul was out and about preaching, people didn't just take his word for it. Um, the people, the Berean church, that, or the Berean, well, it would have been the synagogue at the time, when he first went and preached to them, they listened to him, but then they went back and they studied the scriptures that they had to see if what he said lined up with it. And we should always do that ourselves when we hear messages, when we, you know, whatever, check it out. Does it line up with the Bible? I tell people, you know, my I tell my Sunday school classes this all the time, you know, check me out. If there's something that I say that you don't understand, I mean, I could certainly be wrong. I study and I study and I study and I try to check myself against um, commentaries and what other writers say and all sorts of things. But if you feel like I'm in error on something, let me know. I never want to teach anything contrary to the Word of God. Be very careful, once again, of any system of interpretation that's placed on top of the Bible or is this new way to look at something. Chances are it is simply false. And remember the really true saying, sola scriptura. If you don't, that means only scripture. If you don't understand a passage, cross-reference it, do word studies, read the context of the paragraph, a chapter, the whole Bible. Our next series of lessons will be on how to read your Bible correctly. It's The big theological term is hermeneutics, but I'm just going to give you a lot of really practical advice so you don't make errors in your reading and understanding of the Bible. Now, criteria number four. Did it come with the power of God? To change lives, to give us salvation, to help us grow as disciples. God's word has the power to do that. And it's really evident if you read it. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 1 Peter 1.23 says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. God's word is alive. It's just, it's different. And you can sense that when you read it. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's word 
the Bible, the canonical Bible, changes our lives. And this is one of the things that separates it from the canonical books, from historical books like the Maccabees, which were, you know, they're useful history. And devotional edifying books like the Gospel of Barnabas or the Didache, you know, just useful books in the early church the early church used them for um, church discipline and teaching and organization and stuff, but they are not, they don't have the power of God's word. And one place I think you can clearly see this, again, go back to the excerpts that I gave you of the Gnostic Gospels. There's just secret knowledge and all this kind of stuff, but there's no power in them. And quite the contrary, just a lot of confusion. Criteria number five, was it accepted by the people of God, both when it was first written and on a continuing basis? Moses' writings were immediately accepted. In Joshua twenty-four twenty-six, it said, and Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. People knew that this is what God wanted recorded. All the Old Testament prophets, uh, we find sayings like this when it for perhaps a king will ask them for advice, the prophet will answer and say something like, in Second Kings 19.20, then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a, sent a message to Hezekiah, quote, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, and the king accepted it as being the word of God. First Thessalonians 2.13 says, and we also thank God continually because, you, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. From the earliest days, false or merely historical or pastoral writings were often labeled as such and were just, they were labeled as this is useful for church discipline maybe or church, how we run our programs and this and that and the other. Um, This, nope, it's false. It's going to be ignored. But then this is truly God's word and it is to be obeyed. The New Testament also internally verifies itself. It's kind of interesting, something that you you may not notice if you just read the scriptures in um in 1 Timothy 5.18, uh, Paul is talking about how Timothy has a right to support, and he, he makes two statements. He says, For the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out grain, and the worker deserves his wages. What's interesting is he is quoting one passage from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, and the other passage from the New Testament in Luke. And you notice he refers to both of them as scripture. In Second Peter three, fifteen and sixteen, this is this is a fun um kind of a fun quote. Anyway, Peter says, Our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. And I just love that. People today still are saying, well, you know, some of Paul's stuff's kind of hard to understand. But Peter's just saying, still, it's scripture. 
The church councils later did formalize the canon, but what's really important is that formalizing it does not mean, again, that they created it. For the Old Testament, the Council of Jamnia is a traditional meeting in 90 AD that codified the Old Testament. Um, some have said that they met then because this is following the destruction of the temple. They needed to know for sure what they were basing their, their lives and religion and beliefs on. However, others since then have said, well, that might have um, sort of underscored it, but it had actually been accepted those uh, those same books for quite some time. Josephus mentioned them earlier, the exact same books, and some even go back to the time of the Maccabees as saying that the Jewish uh, Jewish church had always accepted this core of books. But anyway, we know that it, it was formalized around then. In the New Testament, Athanasius of Alexandria, he was the first to formally list the 27 books of the New Testament that we have today. He did that in his Easter letter. And I have a copy of that for you in the notes. And he says some really interesting things about why we trust these books, why it's important to have the canon. And you can look at it again in the notes that I have for you on Bible805.com. It's it's really a neat thing to read and I, I do encourage you to read it. The Synod of Hippo in 393 and the Synod of Carthage in 397 again repeated the list and affirmed them. But remember, the canon, the exact books that make up our Bibles, had been accepted by the people of God long before the councils formally stated that they were scriptures. They didn't determine it. They merely ratified existing consensus. Now, our summary of canonicity. Though books were written through the centuries, God decided the writers and the content. As 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed. He is the author of it all. Humanity's job is simply to recognize what God did, to read and study it, to obey and apply it. So that, let's look at our application. What can we learn from the process of canonicity as we direct our lives. And this is what this is what really spoke to me. Instead of always deciding ahead of time what we want to do and then asking God to make things turn out how we want, when faced with decisions, we need to shift our thinking and say, what does God's word tell us to do? Look at the specifics if you have a, a particular area. In other words, if you have a question about money, look at verses on money. How do people use their resources? How does God want us to handle different things? Don't always trust just random circumstances or events or quote-unquote miracles if they don't line up with the Bible. Far too often today people say, oh, they might receive a word from someone. That person's word is not the word of God. You know, oh, this happened, so I just know that, you know, I this great deal came up on something that I really wanted to buy and so God must be leading me to buy it. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. Knowing the Bible is your decision in line with how people were told to act in the Bible. Do ask yourself, the, this, people have sort of made fun of this, but I, I think it's really good to revisit and to consider the WWJD, what would Jesus do? It's not just a saying, it's something to truly think about. How did he treat people? How did he make decisions? What were the priorities of his life? Where to be his disciples? 
we are to ask ourselves constantly, what would Jesus do? Does your decision show that you belong to God? Are you, you might say, canonical in your actions? Do you measure up to the standard of Scripture? Now, what we believe about the Bible, more than any argument that we can give to people, that's what should be evident in our lives. There is a really neat letter that comes to us from the early church. It's, it's a letter to Diogenetus, and it, he was. A, we don't know who he was. We don't know exactly who wrote it, but he was trying to describe what Christians are like. And let me read you a rather lengthy excerpt from it, but I think it's a, a challenging and encouraging one. He says, Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric way of life. The teaching of theirs has not been discovered by the thought and reflection of ingenious people, nor do they promote any human doctrine, as some do. But while they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot is cast, and follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens and endure. Everything is foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland and every fatherland foreign. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. Just a little parenthesis here. In the ancient world, if uh, parents didn't like their child, maybe it was born deformed or maybe it was a girl and they wanted all boys they would do what's called exposing it which was literally to just leave it on the trash heap to die but of course the early church went and picked up the babies and raised them but um that's a, a something for another an entire another lesson but going on so they do not expose their offspring they share their food but not their wives they are in the flesh but they do not live according to the flesh they live on earth but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. I would say that this description is a canonical lifestyle, one that measures up to the standards of our God and His Word. And my prayer for all of us is that we will live according to the canon of Scripture, that we will live in that way. That's all for now. Please check out the show notes and other materials at www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.